Thank you so much. That was, that was just delightful, and I uh, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, four generations. <laughs> Dr. and Mrs. Clausen, yes, I do remember your grandfather. And uh, I remember Fred Howard. I remember when Knollwood Baptist Church was on Quebec Street. I preached there when Knollwood Baptist Church was on Quebec Street. Um, I've been at uh, London Baptist Bible College and Seminary and now Heritage College and Seminary since 1978. So, uh, yeah, 41 years. Um, I'll tell you. Yeah, don't know. There's no reason for applause. Just I don't know when to. <laughs> Some people just don't know when to quit. <laughs> uh, in case you're trying to figure out how old I am, I started teaching when I was 18. So just and yeah, as if, you know. And Jeff and Bev and others in this room, part of my world back in those days and days since. Yeah. So uh, I, I certainly remember Pastor Fred Howard and, and of course Don and and others along the way. Um, uh, Pastor Nathan, I, I, I just appreciated you and also uh, your worship leader uh, praying for other churches in the city. Um, you're to be commended for that. I'll never, I, most of you know, or many of you know, I pastored Central Baptist Church, now uh, Stony Creek Baptist Church. I pastored that church from 1996 to 2005, so almost 10 years. And I went there in 1996 when uh, there was some, there was some, yeah, we we had some things to deal with. But um, uh, you know, and, and it, it was a, it's a was and continues to be a great church. Um, and uh, those ten years of pastoring that church were some of the best um, uh, in in my wife Lorraine in my life and our family. And. Uh, um, but I'll, I'll never forget the very first time I prayed that, that prayer, that same prayer. I pray for other churches in the city. I pray for other pastors as they're preaching the word of God. I'll never forget preaching that at Central, I was praying that at Central Baptist Church. And I'll never forget the guy that came up to me afterwards with tears in his eyes, an old-time member of the church. If I named him, some of you would know him. And with tears in his eyes and just said, Pastor Dave, thank you. I have never heard another church prayed for in this church in all the time that I have been here. And I thought, wow. You know what? We are a group of churches, whether we're fellowship, whether we're other denominations that preach the word of God. We are a community of faith. We are a community of churches no one church can do it alone. No one church has it all. And so you, in partnership with other churches in the city, and um, are, are standing, standing true and firm for the word of God and for the truth of the gospel, and I commend you for that, and I commend you for having a spirit that engages um, the whole community of faith as we seek to proclaim the gospel to London to southern Ontario, to Ontario, to Canada, and to the world. So, commendations on that. That was fantastic to hear that. Heritage College and Seminary, yes, I've been there since, uh, yeah, 1978. Ah, oh, dear, I'm getting tired, and these kids are getting younger all the time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, <laughs> I teach a class of 50 uh, first year first semester college students these are 17 year old kids and oh my goodness um, uh, I'm teaching them Old Testament survey I have them for four hours uh, two hours before supper and two hours after supper oh my goodness I, 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 I'm just getting too old for this uh, it's just uh, but you know what? I love it. It's just so fantastic to sit in this room, 50 17-year-old kids trying to teach them the Old Testament. Man, I have to stand in my head. I have to dance and sing and do all kinds of weird and wild stuff, which at my age is very, very difficult. But, oh, dear. But what a joy. And, you know, God is blessing Heritage College and Seminary. We are just seeing some absolutely amazing things happen there. Dr. Rick Reed is our president. Many of you have met him, know him. 
Uh, I hope you get him. Have you had him preach here yet? Okay, someday you got to get him here. He's one of the, he is a preacher of preachers. He is he taught uh, Pastor Nathan some preaching and and uh, he is he is the prince of preachers. He's a wonderful man to work for, work with. He's a fantastic leader, and we are blessed to have him uh, part of what we're doing. But God is just doing some amazing things. We're at the, we're at a record enrollment in our seminary. Our graduate program, master's students, we're almost hitting 200 students in our master's program. Uh, some of you remember LBBC, we weren't even close to that. Maybe 50 we were hitting. But anyhow, so we're, we're running about 190 to 200 students in our seminary, and we're running about 150 to 160 students in our college. And so just God is just doing some absolutely amazing things. And... Uh, I'm kind of letting you know something ahead of time. We haven't actually started the campaign yet, (laughs) but people are finding out. Uh, So um, we're running out of space. And so uh, with the number of seminary students, we we don't have enough room for classrooms and offices and that kind of thing. So we're actually moving into a capital campaign and building a building for the seminary, separate building for the seminary. And some married student residences, which we desperately need. Now, the project's going to be about 12 to 14, about $12 million, which is a lot of money. Uh, So I'll be talking to each of you after the service. (laughs) Because (laughs) I am the chair of the capital campaign. (laughs) And uh, so I need to talk to you, and each of you need to give me a couple thousand bucks. Thank you. Just kidding. But the fascinating thing is, in that $12 million campaign, we've already got $11 million promised. So that makes my job a whole lot easier. <laughs> We're at about $10.5, almost $11 million. So, um, and these are some major donors that just believe in us. This is not a lot of people, but there's several major donors who believe in us. And now we, we want to go beyond... Uh, the, the project, the physical project, is about $10 million, and we want to go beyond that. We're calling it Beyond Bricks. And we want, to, we want to invest in distance learning, which we feel is a very important part of what we do as a school. Uh, we want to improve and, and, and tighten up our library. Uh, we want to... Here's, here's my favorite one. Wouldn't it be cool if we could put a million dollars into a scholarship fund to pay and to give, especially ethnic pastors who are pastoring small churches in the GTA in the middle of Muslim communities and Hindu communities and secular communities. But these pastors, and some of them do come on campus, these pastors have nothing. They're, they're living on, on bare bones. And they cannot afford theological education, just cannot do it. And they would, a lot of them are, are just pastoring out of the goodness of their heart and with the best that they've got. Wouldn't it be great if we could put a million bucks in a scholarship fund to say to these GTA ethnic pastors in particular, free education. We'll give you a degree and it won't cost you a dime. Well, you've got to earn it. We're not going to give it to you, but you've got to earn it. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be so cool? You know, that, that's just, it's winding my clock to even think about that and to think that this is the kind of money we could raise for this kind of purpose. Anyhow, just to let you know, uh, just some really, really good things happening down, uh, down the road at, at Heritage College and Seminary. I've been part of this business, as I said. I was part of the London scene forever, as you know, many of you know, and... Um, and I, it's, we're, we're just enjoying some of the best times ever of my time uh, with, uh, with the school. So thank you for your support. I know that you guys support us, and I know that you're, you send us students, and Pastor Nathan's part of our, our uh, alumni and others in the room. And uh, I just want to say thank you for, for uh, helping us out and I trust that we can be a blessing uh, to the church at large and to you in particular. There's a band out there that some of you will know. 
It's not a Christian band, but uh, it's a rock band called U2. <laughs> Some of you have heard of U2 and Bono. And uh, um, they sing a song, Bono sings a song called Raised by Wolves. And uh, Bono would claim to be a, a follower of Christ. Uh, if you have never seen his interview with Eugene Peterson, uh, just Google it and, and go on the YouTube and, and see that interview between Eugene Peterson and Bono. It is really quite startling, quite, quite uh, encouraging. And so he would, he, in some way, shape, or form, I, th- I think he would claim to be a, a follower of Christ. Um, but he sings this song called Raised by Wolves, and a line in that song, some of you will know it, is, um, I don't believe anymore. I don't believe anymore. I don't believe anymore. And the story behind that song is of a friend of his who um, claimed to be a follower of Christ, came from Ireland, grew up in the times when the Catholics and the Protestants were fighting each other in Ireland. And this friend of his saw a car bomb go off in this ongoing struggle. And about 30, 35 people were killed in a religious war between Catholics and Protestants. And his friend said to Bono, if that's what the Christian faith is all about, I'm out. I don't believe anymore. And the question raised is raised, is there a place for struggle and doubt? Maybe even as far as unbelief in the context of belief? Do any of us ever struggle with Is it true? Do any of us ever struggle when we see things like this and others? When we see the abuse of the church, see inappropriate behavior on people who call themselves Christians? And my answer to that question is, yes, there is. And I think part of the reason why some of our second and third and now fourth generation Christians, and that fourth generation now are my grandkids. My father is 94. Okay, I'm second generation. My kids are third. My grandkids are fourth. And I think part of the reason why our, my kids and their kids struggle with the faith There's very little room or no room for authenticity in belief and doubt. And we have taught so much, especially some of us older ones, that uh, everything is sure and certain and uh, any evidence of doubt or any evidence of struggle in the faith is considered an act of carnality, even sin. Is there a place for struggle or doubt or questions about God, his goodness, his love, his righteousness? I mean, after a tragedy, how quickly do we pull out Romans 8.28? Maybe that's not the first verse we pull out. Does the Bible help us with any of this? And the answer is yes. Yes. And there's a psalm that has rooted my faith in my journey of faith, which has included doubt at times. And the psalm has rooted me in the journey of faith that constantly allows me to be authentic in my journey, but has 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 brought me back to the center of God's love, goodness, and confidence time after time 
after time. And that psalm is Psalm 73. So I invite you to take your Bibles and uh, come there with me. I know many of you have read this psalm before. You've probably heard different people preach on it. I remember Pastor Don Howard preaching on this psalm. Some of you will remember that. Maybe some of you old-timers who put notes in your Bibles will have a little note because I know at Central Baptist, people would write in the margins of their Bibles the date when Pastor Dave preached on this text. And if I ever went back to it, they would come back to me after the service and say, you preached on this sermon and you preached on this text eight years ago on such and such a date. And I go, oh, dear, I don't have that recorded, but you obviously do. But I remember Pastor Don preaching on this. I remember hearing him preach on it and being blessed by the way he he dealt with that. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. That's a good place to start. (laughs) But the Hebrew goes into a very interesting, in Hebrew it's v'ani. And it's like a, a 180. But as for me, surely God is good to Israel for those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Whoa, that's a turn, right? They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to humankind. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. (laughs) How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Whoa. How would you like that for an opening doxology for your worship service? This is the beauty of the Psalms, isn't it? Isn't this the beauty of the Psalms that the psalmist can stand and actually write this and give it to the people as part of their expression of worship? This is why I love this book. And this is what we're going to talk about at lunch uh, afterwards. And I know I'm the biggest problem between you and your lunch, so I will try to keep my comments to less than three hours. Okay. (laughs) And then in verse 18, verse 14, he makes a bit of a shift. And he says, if I had said this, if I, if, I, if I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. Oh, okay, Asaph, wow. Saying, hmm, I need to be careful when and how I say certain things. And when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Wow. And what stops me at that point is, what did you see? What did you see when you went into the sanctuary of God? And I think that's the turning point in the psalm. And constantly reminds me, the things that he saw there, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, the things that he saw there restored his faith from his journey of doubt. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin, how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, I was a brute beast before you. Yet, oh, I am always with you. Dear God, thank you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom do I have in heaven? Who do I have in, in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's that same vani. Now we're 180 degrees back. It is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. If that just doesn't warm the cockles of your heart, I have to say I'm not sure you're conscious. 
what a wonderful journey of doubt and faith and confidence that emerges from this. So a little bit about the psalm. First of all, it says it's written by Asaph. Who was Asaph? Asaph was David's senior worship leader. He appointed three, Asaph, Heman, and Ethan, and he appointed Asaph as the chief of the three. So this is the dude that stands in front of you week after week, leading the musical worship of God's people. So this guy has a prominent place in ancient Israel. People know him. They may even know him better than some of the other prominent religious leaders. Sabbath after Sabbath, festival after festival, feast day after feast day, month after month, year after year. This is the guy standing in front of the congregation, leading them in musical worship. Gifted, confident, competent, spiritual. Deeply, deeply spiritual. Great confidence. This is uh, actually, if you look at the next few psalms, they're all written by Asaph. In fact, there's a group of them here, 11 of them, all are written by Asaph. This is called the Asaphic Collection, and this is the first. So I find it fascinating that as he goes through, and he goes through a number of different categories of psalms, some are lament, some are trust, some are praise, but this is the one that he starts with. I find that interesting. As he starts his journey in, in, in whoever, or at least whoever put this little collection together in the book of Psalms, sees this as the one to initiate this little sub-collection within the book of Psalms, this little collection of 11, 73 to 83. The other interesting thing about it is that it actually begins verse, um, it, it begins the, um, a, a collection of what's called book three. If you, you look just above it, it says book three, Psalm 73 to 89. And what we find here is that the book of Psalms is divided into into, um, five books, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five, to parallel the Pentateuch. And so what we find here is, now, book one doesn't parallel to Genesis, book two does not parallel Exodus, that kind of thing. But it seems that whoever put this book together, because they put it together in sequence, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five, they did it in order to get a sense that this is what you, what you might call the law in lyric. We have the Torah, five books, but then we have this, which is in many ways still the Torah. It's another way of looking at the Torah, but it's the law in lyric. And so we find that... that <laughs> I, I find it absolutely fascinating that as we, as we look at this book, not only starts the Asaphic collection, but it also starts book three, which goes up to Psalm 89. Another thing about the psalm is that it, um, it, has, it combines a number of different types. And so some of the some of the types of the psalm that are found here are some of them are you got an element of lament, you got an element of wisdom, you've got an element of trust, got an element of praise. In the book of Psalms, you got a number of different categories of psalms, and for example, Psalm 113 is a praise psalm. Psalm 13 is a lament psalm. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. Psalm 119 is a wisdom psalm. So you've got a number of different categories of psalms, but this one kind of brings a whole bunch of them together. And so we do find trust. Surely God is good news for those who are pure in trust, pure, pure in heart. We find a little bit of lament. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped and I looked at the arrogant. We've got Praise, the whole thing ends with this whole notion, but those are, those, but as for me, it is good to be near my God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I tell, I tell of all your deeds. So you've got elements of praise. So a number of different categories are brought together. And one of, the, one of the ways that we look at the Psalms is we talk about Psalms that are Psalms of orientation, and we talk about Psalms that are of disorientation. We talk of, talk of Psalms that are reorientation. And so you got psalms of orientation. Those are the praise psalms. All is good. Everything is great. 
Everything is, is wonderful. And, and so you got these, these orientation uh, statements, and, and, and the psalm starts there with a psalm of orientation. But then, inevitably, when we live in this world of orientation, things are good. Praising the Lord. Hallelujah. We get the pink slip. We get the, uh, we get the um, note from the doctor. And it's not good. Someone close to us that we love and care for dies. And we crash into disorientation. And it's fascinating. Because lament psalms are the voice of disorientation. And there are more lament psalms in the book of Psalms than there are of any other type of psalm. There are more lament psalms than there are praise psalms. There are more lament psalms than there are thanksgiving psalms. There are more lament psalms than there are psalms of trust. There's the single largest category of the book, in the book of Psalms. Why? Because life is tough. God's given us a voice. And it's a voice of worship. It's not a voice of sin. It's not a voice of carnality. And he's inviting us and saying, crash the gates. Climb up on my lap. Pound my chest. I'm big enough to handle it. One of the most beautiful things we find in this book. So we find these different kinds of categories. We also uh, find that you've got this framing device. Begins with, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Then it ends with, but as for me, it is good. And the word, the, the, the word good, tov, frames the whole thing. Then a couple of ways, a couple of places in the, in the, in the book or in, in the psalm, we see this v'ani, but as for me. He starts off with this statement of orientation, but then crashes into disorientation. But when he comes back to the end, he comes back to this v'ani, and he's back to where he started. So the beauty of this psalm, it starts with orientation, crashes into disorientation, then partway through at about verse 15, it moves into what we call reorientation, when he begins to think about what's going on and trying to get his head around it all, and then back to orientation. It's kind of a loop. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And the interesting thing is, when he comes back to reorientation, he, he doesn't come back to where he was. He comes back to a new place, a more mature place, a bigger place. And so when, we, when you and I go through these kinds of loops, and we all have, there isn't anybody in this room who doesn't follow that story, who doesn't get it. We've all been there. And you and I know that as we move from that or orientation and all is good and we crash into the, the darkness of whatever that look might be in our lives. We move through a, a, a voice of confidence where we take it seriously in light of the pain that we've gone through. But when we come back out the other end, and inevitably we do, we're better people because of it. We're more, more mature. We're more confident in God and his goodness and grace than we, than we ever were. So, let's look at this psalm. Let's kind of find out uh, what we find here. And in this psalm, we have this beautiful expression of what it is to journey in our struggle of faith, but come back to a place of confidence in our God. So we start with what I call orientation. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I think he wrote that probably at the, at the end. I think after he journeys through this whole thing, he sticks that at the beginning in order to give them a sense, okay, don't worry, I'm coming back to something here. All right, I haven't lost my faith. I'm still here. All right? So he starts there. I think he wrote the first verse last and then put it at the beginning. But then with that v'ani, he goes into a place of darkness. And he says, 
But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it's interesting, if you look at this text, it's almost like he's working backwards. He says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I almost stepped off into the abyss. I nearly lost my foothold. I'm kind of climbing down the ladder. For I, er- I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so it's, it's like he's climbing back up. And the first thing he sees is, is he, sees the, he sees the prosperity of the wicked. He sees that, that it wasn't true that all the bad things in the world happen to the wicked. No. <laughs> These people are living well. They're driving nice cars. They've got nice boats. They've got nice homes. They're, they're, they're living well, and all, all the bad things that are supposed to happen to wicked people aren't happening. And I began to envy that. I began to take my view of life from those who seem to have it all. And I took my eyes off God. I began to look at things from a horizontal perspective. I began to look at the creation rather than the creator. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about living under the sun and how that can lead to a passing ephemeral way of life. Soap bubbles, I like to call it. But when we live for the God who lives above the sun, all of a sudden life becomes meaningful and significant. And this is what's happening to Asaph. He began to take his view of life from things, things that he could see around him. He began to take his view of life from creation rather than the creator. And so then he began to move down the ladder, right? I nearly lost my foothold. I started to lose my grasp on what was good and right and righteous and godly and, and kingdom-driven and, and, and lasting. And then he says, I almost stepped off into the abyss. I almost stepped off the ladder. I almost crashed into the darkness and gave it all up. Then he goes through this diatribe of what they look like. And I read it very quickly to you. I won't read it again. But he goes through this diatribe of, of, of what, these, what these people are and no struggles, healthy and strong, free from common burdens, uh, burdens common to, to people, to humankind, uh, to men and women. And, you know, they scoff and speak with, in their arrogance, they threaten, their, verse, verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possessions of the earth. People turn to them, drink waters in abundance. People actually follow these people in their arrogance and wickedness and immorality and voices that are despicable in the way that they speak. Then they mock God. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? The word there, Most High, is El Elyon. The answer is yes. But they mock him, almost like they're saying, come on, come on, bring it on, bring it on, do something. Asaph asks a question, this, or makes a, makes a statement, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Now, <laughs> the interesting thing is, is, this is not all true. But boy, when you're in this funk, when you're, when you're here, this is what things look like. We get a warped perspective of, of what the world really is. We don't see the dark side. But when we're in the darkness, all we can see is some of this stuff. Always carefree, the increase in wealth. And then this cry in verse 13, this is the most poignant, powerful, and I've been here. I don't know about you, but I've been here. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure. Why bother with this whole thing? Vain have washed my hands in innocence. I'm ready to give it up. Bruce Walkie says of me at that point, my soul is in moral jeopardy. Asaph's soul was in moral jeopardy, spiritual jeopardy. All day long I've been plagued, I've been punished every morning. And so he starts with orientation, crashes into disorientation. And I, and I want to I not go quickly through this. 
Lament is a critical part of the journey of faith. And we can't give up on each other when we're in those places. This is where the church has to be able to like reach out and, and not push people aside and say, okay, you're, you're, you're outside the, the boundaries of, of how we can serve and minister to you. That is so wrong. This is where the church invades, where you, me, each other, listen. Journeying with a man who lost his wife 10 years ago. If I named him, you would know him. Many of you would know him. I'm meeting for coffee with him this afternoon. Lost his wife 10 years ago. Six kids. He and his wife were missionaries. They came home. She had cancer. Doctor gave her six months. She was dead in four weeks. Some of you were at the funeral. I journey with this man now for 10 years. We get together for coffee, supper, lunch, every two to three weeks. 10 years. I live in Cambridge, I live in Kitchener, he lives in London. We meet in Woodstock. The servers have got to know us. And they, when they see two grown men crying, that's not a good time to bring coffee at Montana's. We've gone through some very, very dark times. Asaph's song, in many ways, has been his song. My song. And the worst thing that we can do for a person like that is abandon him. Not allow him to have the voice that Asaph has in the beginning of this song. Because it's a voice of faith, even though it looks like the voice of doubt. But the psalm doesn't end in verse 14. It's halfway through. And half the psalm is spent in lament. But at verse 15, things begin to change. And it seems that Asaph, even though he writes this psalm and gives it to the people, he recognizes that he has some responsibilities as a leader in the community of faith. And I guess I'm saying, and I guess it seems to me that, that there is a time and a place. Asaph chose to put this to write this psalm and give it to the people. But evidently when he was in the funk himself, he said this. But if I had said, I will speak this way, previous verses, I would have betrayed your children. So in other words, his first step back was to, was to realize that he did have some responsibilities to those that were in his charge. It's a small step. It's a quiet step. It's a thoughtful step. But it's a recognition that we aren't islands unto ourselves. And we do have contacts in which we serve and work. So that's the first step. Kind of a, re, we reaffirm our commitment uh, to our charges. But then the next one I think is a big one, verse 16. I call it, we go to the place where God can meet us. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. And truly, if we, are, if we have God's spirit living within us and when we, when we begin to think this way, immediately there begins this barrier of this doesn't seem right, doesn't seem right. So it was oppressive to me. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And that's the turning point of the song. And as I said, when I was reading it through with you, I asked the question, what did you see there? Now, this is not original with me. I heard this psalm preached, as I said, I heard it by, preached by Pastor Don years and years ago. Another scholar that I, I really uh, respect, a guy by the name of Bruce Walkey, uh, I heard him preach this psalm, and he's the one who, who helped me see this. So it's not original with me. But he asked the question, Asaph, what did you see? 
And I'm asking the question, Asaph, what did you see? And you know, it's interesting because as Asaph went to the sanctuary, to the tabernacle, the temple wasn't built yet, but if he's in the time of David, it's tabernacle. And he's, he enters into the sanctuary, enters into the tabernacle, or he's outside in, in the place where the public can go, and maybe he can go in a little further because he's a worship leader. But there's a place where he can't go. There's a curtain in that tent. And behind that curtain, in the Holy of Holies, there were some objects that came to his mind. And every Israelite knew what was behind that curtain. And unlike the other ancient Near Eastern religions where there was inevitably this kind of structure, but behind that curtain would be a little gold god that no one would knew what was going on and some mystical kind of priest went in there and stroked that little gold god and nobody knew what was happening back in, behind that curtain in the ancient Near Eastern religions. But in Israel, it was plainly evident to everyone what was behind that curtain. It was not a mystery religion. It was a revelational religion. And behind that curtain, there were a bunch of things. The first thing that there was, as you think about what was behind that curtain, there was a box. What was the box called? Ark of the Covenant, right? And on that box, on the top of that box, there, were, there was some what? What was on the top of that box? Blood. The blood of bulls and goats. And no, blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin. But every year the high priest went in there and would offer, a, offer a, a goat or a lamb, some kind of animal, and would put the blood on the top of that altar. No, it does not take away sins. Only Jesus Christ and his sacrifice takes away sins. But Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, has been slain since the foundation of the earth. Revelation 11, 13, sorry. And so the blood of Jesus Christ has been effective since the moment of creation. And while that blood was put on the altar, the blood of Jesus Christ was redeeming the people of God in Israel in the same way it redeems us. No, it didn't happen in history until when it did. But in God's mind, the way that he sees things, it was effective before the actual act took place. But there was blood on that altar. And Asaph was reminded Our sins are forgiven. And the Old Testament saints knew the joy of sins forgiven. Just read Psalm 32. They knew the joy of sins forgiven. And Asaph knew that when he saw that blood on top of that box. Inside the box, there were three things. What were the three things inside the box? There was manna. There was a a stick or a rod. And there was the Ten Commandments, right? Is that what I heard people say out there? Those are the three things, a bowl of manna, a stick or a rod, Aaron's rod, and the Ten Commandments. So Asaph, what was he reminded of? He was reminded of the fact that God had provided for his people in the past when they were in the wilderness. He was reminded that there was a stick that turned into a snake and ate the other snakes. He was reminded that that stick actually budded. And had flowers. He was reminded of the miracle working power of his God. He was reminded of ten commandments. Ten devarim. Ten words carved with the finger of God in stone. His moral, ethical, and spiritual unalterable will. He was reminded of these things. The word of God carved in stone, the miraculous ability of God to do his work and his will, and the ability of God to care for his people in their moments of deepest need. At the end of the box, there were two creatures. What were they called? Cherubim, with their wings outstretched over the box. These cherubim are terrifying creatures. They are not the sweet little angels that you see at Valentine's Day with chubby little babies with wings on their, or on their shoulders with bows and arrows. They are horrifying, terrifying, frightening creatures with wings and eyes and wheels and four faces. Just read Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, Revelation 4. Face of a lion, face of an ox, face of an eagle, and face of a man. Why those four? Ox, the sovereign of domesticated cattle. The eagle, the sovereign of the birds of the air. The lion, the sovereign of the wild beasts. A man, the sovereign of all creation. is the image bearer of God. And Asaph is reminded as he looks at those cherubim and sees those cherubim carved on the end of that box. 
that his God is sovereign. His God is all-powerful. And so as he goes to the place where God could meet him, he goes to the sanctuary where all the signs and symbols of the goodness and greatness of his God were there. He was reminded of all those wonderful and beautiful things. And I don't know about you, but when I struggle with my faith, I'm usually, there's skid marks on the carpet going the other direction. And what does Asaph do? He goes to a place where God could meet him, where all the signs and symbols of the goodness and grace and power and majesty of God are to be found. And that's when he says, I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them in slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin, how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you would despise them as fantasies. He realizes all that he has with God and who, the God that he knows and the God that loves him and redeemed him and cares for him, provides for him and is a miraculous God. He's a sovereign God, all those things. He starts talking about his life with God in verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beat before you. And that's where we go. That's, we recognize that when we're in those moments of doubt and struggle, yet I am always with you. Oh, my goodness, verse 23. Thank you, Jesus. Footprints in the sand. Doesn't say, I am with you. I'm sorry, it doesn't say you are with me. It says I am with you. Right? He doesn't move. You hold me by my right hand. The right hand in the Bible is the hand of strength. There's no word for left-handed in the Bible. <laughs> the only way to describe left-handed is say you're weak in your right hand. Sorry about you. Sorry about that, you left-handed people. But uh... <laughs> and the right hand is the hand of strength. And you know what? He's saying, my right hand is not strong enough. You have to hold me. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me to glory. I believe that Asaph fully understood what it was to be in the presence of God after death. So who do I have in heaven but you on earth? There's nothing I desire besides you. And certainly Asaph desired other things on earth and heaven. He had family. He had relationships. But this is a statement of ultimacies. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then finally, we come back to orientation. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are faithful to you. Starts off with the negative, which is typical in wisdom literature. Starts off with a negative statement. But then he goes to a positive statement with a vani, a 180 degree switch. But as for me, it is good to be near my God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So where do we go here? Where do we go with this? We see Jesus, don't we? The Jesus, the God revealed in the Old Testament, the name Yahweh revealed in the Old Testament is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. We find that referred to all the time. And we need to understand that. We also need to understand that Jesus cried lament as well. Psalm 22. He cried that out from the cross. So his voice is our voice and our voice is his voice. And he is the one that we cry to. He knows our struggles. We've all been there and we crash the gates. He is the one who is saying, come to be my child, even in the moments of your deepest doubt. There's good news here. Look at the gospel. This is the gospel. The good news is that we have the welcome from God all the time. And we say to the world, you can know this God as I know this God, as we know this God. We can say to the world, this is the God of Christianity. This is the God of the church. This is the God of redemption and hope and healing. This is the God that we worship every week, Sunday after Sunday. And you can be part of that by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. For some of us, this may shake us up a little bit. Maybe we're not quite sure about some of the things that I've just talked about. Is this really true? Well, I'm suggesting maybe we have to think a little differently. 
Maybe a bit of a worldview shift to kind of process some of this. And so what is our response? What's your response? What's my response? I don't know you. I don't know your stories. I don't know where you are, where you've been. I don't know where you are in the journey of faith. I can't tell you how to respond to this. But I can simply say to you, allow the Holy Spirit to take his holy word and impact your heart in a way that will cause you to know God in ways perhaps you have never, ever known him before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor, died as a martyr for the faith months, weeks before the end of the Second World War, executed by the Nazis. When he was in prison, he wrote this, entitled, Who Am I? Who am I? They often tell me I step out from my cell, composed, contented, and sure, like a lord from his manor. Who am I? They often tell me I speak with my jailers, frankly, familiar and firm, as though I was in command. Who am I? They also tell me I bear the days of hardship, unconcerned, amused, and proud, like one who usually wins. Am I really what others tell me? Or am I only what I myself know of me? Troubled, homesick, ill, like a bird in a cage, gasping for breath as though one strangled me, hungering for colors, for flowers, for songs of birds, thirsting for kind words, for human company, quivering with anger at despotism and petty insults, anxiously waiting for great events, helplessly worrying about friends far away, empty and tired of praying, of thinking, of working, exhausted and ready to bid farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I then this today and the other tomorrow? Am I both at the same time, in public a hypocrite, by myself a contemptible, whining, weakling? Or am I to myself like a beaten army flying in disorder from a victory already won? Who am I? Lonely questions mock me. Who I really am, you know me. I am thine. Oh, Lord, God bless you all.